Okay, thank you. Um, thank you very much for uh, the performance last night. I want to take a moment. I've studied the Second World War, and this is new uh, material for me, so it was absolutely wonderful for me to see the performance last night. So I wanted to take a second to thank all of you that have been involved in this and the wonderful work you did. So thank you very much for that. Um, today it is my distinct pleasure to introduce Rita Kramer, who I must say uh, was a student of English literature at Columbia University. Um, she's written articles for a variety of publications, including the New York Times Magazine, the Wall Street Journal, the International Herald Tribune, and the Public Interest, just to name a few. Her books, uh, which range from <coughs> a biography of Maria Montessori to uh, her first novel, When Morning Comes, I think showcase her range and how at home she is in multiple genres. But among the group here today, she is best known for Flames in the Field, the story of four SOE agents in occupied France a book whose origins might be as intriguing as the history it recounts. So please join me in welcoming Rita Kramer. Thank you, Charlie. I want to begin by thanking Leslie and Mary for bringing me here and giving new life to the memory of these women and to their moment in history. And I want to thank all of the previous speakers who sent me home last night in despair. And thank you in the conviction that I ought to get out of town and on an airplane back home because there was nothing left for me to say. <laughs> They've covered just about everything. So I've decided that the only thing that they don't know that I know <laughs> is how I got onto this. <laughs> so I think I'm going to tell you that story. And it begins once upon a time. I was with my husband driving around the north of France, around Alsace. We were waiting for the uh, day on which we could occupy a rented house nearby. And we went along the road and came to a sign that said, restaurant, gas chamber. Now, many of you have read my book, and even if you haven't, you know it all from everything you've heard today and yesterday. So you're probably not shocked. But imagine how we felt. Um, of course, we went this way, and we saw not only the uh, remains of the, what had been um, a place to keep the bodies, but the camp itself. We went in and the, uh, the guide, the, the guard who was there apologized because there was no English-speaking guide that day and gave us um, a description of the camp printed on a piece of paper. And I would read a little as we walked around, and then I, I couldn't read anymore, and I'd give it to my husband. And he'd read a little and then give it back to me. It was an unforgettable day. And we lived out the rest of the summer and went back to our normal lives, and I couldn't get this place out of my mind um, because clearly this was the only now, it, here I have to fudge a little. I, I was going to say a death camp. 
on the soil of France, not in Poland or Germany. It was not a death camp in the sense in which Treblinka or Auschwitz were. They weren't rounding up people, Jews specifically, for the purpose of murdering them. They were incarcerating people who would be subject to what was called NN, Nacht und Nebel, which means night and fog. The idea, the name was um, given by uh, one of those very specially cultured SS men, it's <coughs> Wagnerian. And um, they were meant to disappear without trace. They'd be worked to death or they would die of malnutrition, disease, hopelessness. But there was one thing <coughs> that I learned about them. Because when I came home, um, I went to the New York Public Library and looked up in what was then a card catalog. Any of you remember card catalogs? <laughs> and looked up everything there was on Natzweiler. And one of the things that struck me was that, and I don't mean to minimize for a moment their suffering, but these people had something that those who were sent to places like Auschwitz did not have, and that was a sense of why they had been sent there. Every one of them had committed an action made a choice, decided on something that had led to his or her being there. Uh, I'm sorry, his being there. And that was it. I learned about Knotzweiler, that it was a camp for men. And I had forgotten to say that the most intriguing, if I can use that word, and, 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 and certainly uh, disturbing, moment of our tour th through the camp had been seeing this uh, plaque. We noted that there were two names that sounded French, one that sounded English, and one that sounded Slavic. But there was no explanation, just that they were parachutists. I've put their pictures up here just so that you'll have something to look at besides me while I'm talking. <laughs> I think you know who they are. I don't have to. Um, I went on wondering about these women. What were they doing there? And what happened to them? Then one night, and here I have to say that the writing of history or biography is very largely a matter of serendipity. You start with something and you have no idea where it will take you. As a matter of fact, if I had known when I started on this what I know now, I never would have started. It was so Byzantine, so complex, and took so many years. Um, but now, of course, I think it was one of the, certainly the highlight of my professional writing life. One night we came home rather late from a dinner party, and my husband, as is his wont, turned on the TV. And I said, oh, or something like that. <laughs> and there was a documentary, and there was a woman talking with an English accent, and there behind her was an unmistakable scene. It was Knotzweiler. 
I don't know why I felt that because every concentration camp had those outlook posts in the corners and said Arbeit Mafia. This this didn't. It just said Konzentration Nazweiler. I've suddenly lost Mary. What's Stutthof? Thank you. Um, we couldn't believe it. I did a little detective work afterward to find out who had produced the program, and I wrote and found out that this was a woman named Vera Atkins, and that they would not give me her address, but would forward to her uh, a letter from me if I chose to write one, which I did, and I sent her a couple of books I'd written, and I got a very nice reply from her. Um, she said she'd be glad to talk to me any time about, I had asked her about the four women who died at Nazisville. I don't like using that passive expression, who died, as though they had whooping cough or something, who were murdered at, at Nazisville. And that's true of all the camps. Well, I found myself coming to a little village on the southern coast of England called Winchelsea and knocking on the door, not knowing what to expect. And when the door opened, there was this magnificent woman, a, a, an awe-inspiring body. It was partly because there were steps and she was standing on the top of them. <laughs> but in any case, she ushered me in and the first thing she said to me was, what is your usual tipple? I had no idea what she was talking about. I thought, is she getting personal with me? And we just. But she showed me her glass. I got the idea. I saw she was drinking something, and I was pretty jet lagged. And I said, tea? And she gave me a look of such withering contempt <laughs> that I immediately um, figured what was in that glass. It wasn't water. And I said, gin. And from that moment on. <laughs> now, Vera settled me in her tiny living room in her tiny house. And she talked for about two hours through a haze of cigarette smoke and couple of refills. <laughs> and she told me, well, I, st I remember still the first question I asked her. I said, um, were these women related in some way? Were they on the same mission of some kind? And then she began to tell me about SOE, which I had never heard of. At the end of, well, she told me things that you all know, but that I was still ignorant of, um, and many of which, of course, I read more about and learned about. Um, but it was very general. And then she said, now, here, I'm going to write down some books for you to read and some people for you to see. The first people were Odette and Brian Stonehouse, and it went on from there, because this kind of research, if you were to put it on paper, it looks like sort of like a genealogical chart. Here's Vera. Okay, two this way. 
Each of them sends me to two or three. Each of them sends me to two or three. And same with the books. You look at the uh, bibliography. So there began um, a process of doing a lot of reading back home, but coming back uh, after I'd made arrangements to meet various agents, including Odette, Brian, uh, Lisa, Villamour, Francis, Kammerts. And it was like an, it was like starting a life in another world, but a world that um, was real. It, was an, it wasn't the first time that I'd been exposed doing research to another um, time and place, but I suppose I myself had very strong feelings about that time. I was a child, but I do remember the war. I remember my mother coming home from work and sitting down, and I wanted her attention, but she went right to the radio and turned it on, and I heard words like baton, corregidor, and I knew that all those photographs on my grandmother's bureau were of people that couldn't be found anymore. So this had a lot of emotional resonance for me. And uh, as I read, um, I learned not as much as you all know today, because a lot of things, a lot of papers at the S, the, uh, uh, the archive, I, what is it, the SRO, had not uh, been released. A lot of reports and and so on. But um, I learned about the recruiting and the, the fact that the women had the same commando training as the men, along with other details that you've, you've been hearing about, um, and about the training, and about whether people sent them off to drink at the nearest uh, pub to see whether they got too talkative after they'd had a couple. <laughs> they listened at night to see what language they spoke in their sleep. And then I began to I, am, I, I began a process that involved, through learning about each of these women, learning about the world she'd come from, and it, it just led to all kinds of, of other places and times. Andre was a tomboy. Um, she liked to spend her weekends bicycling in the countryside. She dressed like a guy. Um, she was a good athlete, and she worked as a salesgirl in a bakery on a very elegant avenue off the Etoile. When war came, she went south to the presumably unoccupied zone of France and worked for the Red Cross and then joined an escape line, shepherding uh, downed 
pilots and escaped POWs down to the Pyrenees, which they could cross into Spain, where they'd be put into a concentration camp, but released through the um, offices of the British consul there after a little while. Um, from the escape line, when it was blown, she made her way with a uh, companion to London, where she would normally have gone to work for RF, uh, which is the other um, SOE section in France, which was de Gaulle's section. Now, a little about de Gaulle's place in all of this. Winston Churchill said the worst cross he had to bear in the war was the Cross of Lorraine. And uh, it's not that um, it's not that de Gaulle was not interested in winning the war, but he was primarily interested in winning the peace. Um, there was a big communist movement in France and also a far-right Catholic movement and a lot of collaborators, and it was going to be a mess. And what he was really concerned with was taking France over and uh, creating the peace. So his section had to be the first choice of any French person, French national. And she refused because they asked her at Duke Street, which was the headquarters of the, uh, of the RF, the de Gaulle section, of what were called the Free French, to tell them the names of the people she'd been involved with. Now, you have to understand that from de Gaulle's point of view, the British were not as much of an enemy as the Germans, but they still were rivals. And um, what he succeeded in doing when he finally got back to France was, first of all, throwing out all the Brits, um, men who had not only risked their lives, but had actually been responsible for delaying the movement of the Das Reich tank group from the south of France up to the Normandy beachhead by three weeks. A trip that should have taken them three days took three weeks because of sabotage uh, and sniper fire of all kinds. Now, there was no real resistance in the first year or two of the war in France, except what was organized and carried out by the British. That's true. Now, later, um, there were two waves of resistors. The Maquis, who were all the young men who ran into the hills as soon as it was made clear that they'd have to go to Germany for forced labor. Um, then later, in 1944, when it was perfectly clear which way the victory was going, uh, suddenly everybody put on an armband and had been a resistor all along. N'est-ce pas? Uh, <laughs> there was a name for them. They were the Résistants de 44, resistors of 44. But until then, they 
were the kind of people who took in Diana Roden. Now, Diana Roden grew up in the south of France. She had what sounds like a lovely childhood. Um, her mother lived there because, uh, and this is the story of many of the British whose children spoke such impeccable French. Life in France was cheaper than life in England at the time. So during the, in the interwar years, there was quite a large uh, English colony of expats in France. Um, she was sent to school in England, but longed to get back to her life in France. She went to the Sorbonne for a while, and she too, with her mother, got out of Paris um, as things began to get rough, and actually was commissioned in the Women's Air Auxiliary Force, um, where she did very good work, and recuperating from some minor thing, she met some one who'd come back uh, from the battle and uh, told him how much she longed to go back to France. And he gathered that she spoke French perfectly. And I'll interrupt myself here to tell you, go back to recruiting and tell you a little something about how it was done. Uh, in her, in, it, this happened with her too, that um, she later got an invitation which had come from him. He had mentioned her to someone who knew someone in SOE. Now remember that recruiting for SOE was a little difficult. You couldn't put an ad in the time secret agents wanted. <laughs> so it was a kind of an old boy or old girl thing. People you knew and people they knew. So she was asked to come for an interview. She had no idea for what. She thought possibly a translation job. Uh, to a dingy little room in the Hotel Victoria, which was near the station, with one light bulb hanging. And there, Selwyn Japson began to ask her the normal sort of questions. And he suddenly broke into French. And that was a test. She replied in French. And it was good French. And that was the beginning of her. Uh, now, she was sent as a courier to live with a French family who ran a sawmill. Simple people. Now, I think you have an idea by now of what it meant for these simple French people, farmers, uh, mill runners, whoever they were, to take in a British agent or an English person of any kind, or a Jew. They would be taken out and summarily shot or deported to one of the camps. So these were good people. And they loved her, and she loved them. And she helped with the dishes, and she went out for walks in the woods, presumably with the children, but it was really so she could smoke a cigarette. <laughs> now, I haven't come, I, I, I really haven't dealt with their endings, but what I learned 
from her mostly was about the kinds of people who became helpers and without whom SOE could not have done anything there. Now, moving to Vera Lee up there. It's a terrible picture, but it's the only one. I know she didn't look like that. Don't ask me how, but I just know. <laughs> but it looks like a, like a mug shot, as Tony said. Uh, but it's the only one that we have. There's a drawing of her, but... Now, as a Parisian, she was sent back to Paris, where she promptly forgot everything she'd been told about security, <laughs> moved into an apartment in the neighborhood where she'd been living for years, and, and I think this statement has caused a certain amount of confusion, and went to her usual hairdresser. She was not betrayed by her hairdresser. Uh, that's, I don't know, one of the things that gets repeated often enough to begin to seem like uh, truth. She didn't need to be betrayed by anybody because by that time, the Abwehr knew everything there was to know about her and they only had to pick her up whenever they were ready. Meanwhile, they just let her trip around her neighborhood and have her hair done. Um, you see, these girls, and I, I want to call them that because when they left, they were girls. And by the time they ended up or came back, yes, they were women. They were so young. They were up against, well, first of all, they'd been trained by people who were off there in London and had no idea, really, how hard they tried what was actually going on in France every day and every night. And um, they had no experience except those six months. Now, they are pitted against professionals the people in, the Abwehr was military intelligence. They'd had more than six months. The other people who were uh, in, uh, let's say, the SD, the Sicherheitsdienst, uh, the SD, which is not the SS, but it's, it's a pretty nasty bunch too, but they are more um, civilian and less um, professionally sadistic. Um, they were former policemen. But they, these were all people who had much more experience in matters of security, spying, following people, what have you. So in Paris, she was not alone. Let me tell you what was going on in Paris. I'm not saying France, because remember, France during World War II was still an agricultural country until after the war. And by the way, women did not have the vote in France until after the war, 1944. Uh, which is neither here nor there, but I'm making it here. <laughs> um, in Paris, almost without exception, all of the intellectuals were collabos. Nobody was terribly unhappy to see the Germans there. They were nice young men. They were well-behaved. They were so glad to be in Paris and not on the Russian front. Um, girls went out with them. No, 
nothing really shameful about that. What's shameful is the role that all of the French intellectuals, without exception, played, except those who were able to get out. Sartre, Colette, you, you can't name one that didn't write for the Vichy Press or for the, the Germans published some horrible um, anti-Semitic uh, publications in, uh, during those years. And um, they wrote for them. They partied with them. And there was this split between rural France, where, where good, simple people were at. If you were asked to help, you helped. And after the war, when they were interviewed, those people all tended to say something, you know, why did you do this? Why did you take this risk? And even people who had been deported but had come back, they would say something like, I feel good about myself, or my heart is tranquil. The, the French intellectuals went the way the wind went. And I'm sorry to say that after the war, not so much the British, but the Americans forgave everybody everything, including the Germans. So it was in the course of learning about what had happened to, but also where these women had come from, that I had learned about things like that. The last one, of course, had already been identified by the time I came on the scene. The whole SOE business was kept secret and was intended to remain secret after the war for two reasons. The military, the foreign office, and all um, officials and authorities of all kinds were really against what was called irregular warfare. Um, the, there's a, a well-known statement by some very important figure when it was suggested that something like SOE uh, be done or that there be censorship, said, gentlemen don't read each other's mail. Uh, and the attitude was also a very class-based one because most of the people, well, the, well, people who ran things like the SOE were all upper class. They'd all, they were Oxbridge uh, public school before that and so on. They knew each other. If you read uh, MRD Foote's most recent book, which I had occasion to review for the Journal of Military History, you might be amused that most of the book is name dropping about who he went to school with, <laughs> Um, who he served with, and, and so on. Um, it is a memoir, and, you know, it, uh, I suppose that's to be expected, but it gives you an idea of what their life was like. Now, SOE took in anybody who could be useful, a taxi driver, um, a man who could pick locks. I don't have to tell you where they got him. Um, didn't matter. Even they, they even did take some people out of uh, restraint, I will say, to be polite. Um, 
Let me just, uh, I know we're running out of time. Um, Noor and Sonia did look alike. You could not tell that from this picture or from the sad one of Noor that was shown earlier. They were both beautiful. They both had dark hair, dark eyes, and full sensuous lips. Um, but the way that all came out was when, when Noor didn't come back, a journalist who had known her um, before she went away, made it her business to look into things and, and wrote a book called Madeline and several books after that that dealt with uh, Noor's fate. Some of it is uh, documented, little of it is not, but it, it brought the whole thing out. And um, Sonia's life was different. Um, she and her parents were refugees from Eastern Europe. They were Jews and little by little subject to the racial laws which uh, had been um, set up just as in Germany. First you couldn't um, use the public parks. You couldn't use a telephone. Uh, you couldn't have a job in anything the government rang. You couldn't be a teacher. Um, you couldn't shop until certain hours by which time there was nothing left on the shelves in the stores. And life got worse and worse. Um, you, uh, you couldn't be treated uh, by uh, a doctor, or rather he couldn't uh, treat Jewish. Her father died, and she met a Swiss businessman, also a Jew, who was at the center of a little group of Jewish agents, you might say, but they were and this is very Jewish, in business for themselves. Uh, one of them was sent to London and trained by SOE. So they became a, one of the Brazil, one of the sub-circuits um, of the Prosper Network. And when the Prosper disaster took place, her friend probably her lover, uh, Monsieur Weil, went back to Switzerland, uh, went to uh, like Geneva and managed to, from not on a sea, managed to get across. She did not go with him. She told her mother, there's nobody left. Uh, there's nobody to be a courier, a radio, anything. I'm the only one. And she did say to her brother, to whom I spoke, if we don't do it, who will? She stayed and did her work until she received a message from London 
to expect uh, a new agent and to meet him at a certain time and place. And she went there after discussing this with her mother, who didn't want her to go. She went, she sat in the cafe, and she was met uh, by the Gestapo. So what I've really meant to be talking about was how looking into the fate, starting with the fate of these women, moving into their backgrounds, their lives, how they got to where they, how they got to Natzweiler, taught me a lot about rural France, about French intellectuals, um, about the escape lines, and about the fate of the Jews in France, about which one has to say that it was carried out not by the Nazis, but by the French themselves. It was French police who rounded up the Jewish families and put them on buses that were driven by French drivers and took them to camps that were run by French people in areas where they were overlooked by apartment houses where their residents could look out of the windows and see what was going on and complained about it. I, I don't mean complained about the brutality or the lack of what we would call civil rights, but complained that they had to look at them. Now, SOE had a lot of disasters. Pros the, pro the destruction of the Prosper Network being probably the the most famous and worst. The whole question of what happened to them is, is still an open mystery. And if you'd like, I'll tell you what I think. Not, not what I know. Nobody knows. I don't, I don't think that um, Francis Suttle met with Churchill. There's been a lot of looking into that. Nothing in his diary, he wasn't there. Um, I don't know if he met with Buckmaster. I only know that he came back with one of two pieces of information that would mean the end for them all. He either knew that um, the cross-channel invasion would not be up in the Pas de Calais, but pardon me, down at Normandy, or he knew that it was not going to be imminent. They had expected the invasion to take place in 43, couldn't be done. But the Germans still fought 43. So in either case, one or perhaps both pieces of information, it's not so much that they would be caught and they would, if tortured, give the wrong information. It was that they had no hope of surviving any longer. Foote said they put their heads up when they should have kept them down, and that is certainly true. You've heard how, uh, you've seen how Andre and uh, Gilbert Norman, who isn't mentioned here, um, and uh, Subtle played cards, talked English in cafes, things like that. Um, 
By the way, she did not say Derecourt betrayed us. I don't know where that comes from. What she said was more interesting. In the women used to send their underwear from the jail, friend, back to be washed by their families and it would be returned. And in the hems, they managed to put teensy pieces of cigarette paper rolled up on which they'd written messages. And what André said was, c'est Gilbert qui nous a trahi. It's Gilbert who betrayed us. Now, does that mean um, Gilbert Norman? Or does it mean, um, help me here. Um, thank you. Um, we don't know. But it was certainly true that they were on the verge of being caught anyway. Now, at the time I wrote the book, I included in the back as a kind of appendix a little information about the series of books that had recently been published, making accusations, saying that they had been betrayed by London uh, for one strategic reason or another. And I listened to Foote and to my my good friend uh, Kamertz, who I think just couldn't believe such a thing. Um, they each had their own reasons. And I, I made no judgment about these things. I just thought they're part of the story. But I got a lot of flack, both from Vera and from Foote, for writing about this at all, for including it. And I was younger and um, maybe not less wise, but less experienced. And I hadn't read as much as I have since about what goes on in the, behind the closed doors of governments. And I now don't find it unthinkable that the 20 committees, XX, who were also called the War Board, who were the absolute tops in planning the war, sat there and said, look, this is hard, this is sad, but these guys are blown anyway. And if we can use them to win the war, winning the war is our objective. So that may be true. I don't know any more than, than you do, but that's possible. Now, when de Gaulle got back to France, which the Allies were very happy to help him do immediately, oh, first they let General Leclerc lead the French army down the Champs-Élysées, like they had done anything except surrender and run away. <laughs> um, then de Gaulle himself appeared, and the first thing he did was confront the men who had led the SOE um, circuits in the South that had caused this delay um, in the service of the landings, and he said to them, you have 24 hours to get out, your place is not here. Which they did. Um, there's a roster of names of very brave men who survived because they were sensible and careful and who were responsible for 
that kind of action, which Eisenhower said had shortened the war. But um, this was his job, and he succeeded beautifully with the help of certainly my country. I don't know really how, I don't know enough about the uh, British response to this or how it was uh, expressed, but he had three, three themes that we bought into. France was conquered, France resisted, and France liberated herself. Well, the truth is that France caved immediately and begged for an armistice, that there was no resistance to speak of until pretty late on, uh, except for what was led by the Brits, who were sent over specifically to identify, organize, arm, and train potential resistors for the eventual cross-channel landing. And of course, France did not liberate herself. They went out into the streets of Paris, you know, when? August 44? That took a lot of bravery, right? With their new armbands. So if, now, if I sound bitter, <laughs> I am. <laughs> now, I have to say something about this project. This has been absolutely fascinating for me. For one thing, um, I'm not a scholar, so it, it's not as though this was a subject that I was going to be perusing for the rest of my life. It was one book I wrote, my favorite. Um, and I was moonlighting when I wrote it because I wasn't getting any money. I was doing what they call work for hire while doing all this. Um, but it, it's not that I'd forgotten. It's just that it wasn't something I thought of every day. Since I began talking with Leslie and Mary, it's all begun to come back to me. And being here these last two days, I, I just, I, I don't know, I feel like weeping a lot of the time and I was afraid I would, I would uh, humiliate myself by bursting into <laughs> tears up here uh, because what you have done is so touching and particularly important and this goes for everyone that was involved in it. All the actors, writers, directors, uh, whoop, technical people. I'm not a technical person. <laughs> um, what you've done is extended that, that chain or thread of memory. Now, when I asked Vera Atkins, many people asked her why she was doing this, you know, spending the rest of her life answering questions that would lead people to memorialize her agents, not just these four, all her agents and not just women. She said, one knew them. And then she said that it was important that they be remembered. And I think remembering them, you remember not just the individuals, but something about the kind of people they were and the kind of people who helped them. 
and what's important in life, what we, what we are to each other. Now, when I first met Leslie, it was the first time that I'd ever consciously thought specifically about them as actors. How could I not have thought that? I mean, <laughs> I knew I had written all about how they had to learn a role, they had to assume a new identity, they had to know all the details, and they had to be able to act as though they were, they had to become that person as you do on stage. Never thought of it. So, thinking about them as actors, I asked myself the question, would they have survived if they'd been better actors? And of course the answer is no. Um, as Juliet said, it was largely a matter of, you can call it luck or chance. Um, I mean, we can, we can say what the things were, um, but there's nothing they could have done about betrayal or about being caught that depended on them. In fact, there are stories I don't have time to tell you about these radios being played back with, this, with the message in it, caught, caught, caught. And Buckmaster said, uh, oh, they get mixed up, you know, they get nervous. And one very successful male agent came back and stormed into the office and said, what the hell did you think those security checks were for? But I guess, I guess my penultimate statement was what I really most wanted to say was that I'm very grateful to all of you for, for having me here to be able to take part in this really wonderful, historic, dramatic exercise and that I salute you all because I think we're all part of this chain of memory. Thank you. Any questions? I saw a hand back there. Change your mind. I thought it interesting what you said about the uh, French uh, intelligentsia because it was actually them after the war that were the most fervently oh, yes. anti-fascist, yes. pro-Soviet, and intolerant of anyone that they even suspected of being on the wrong political side of the equation. Absolutely, yeah. It was um, it was a betrayal of civilization, really, and I've ever since haven't really trusted intellectuals. <laughs> if there's nothing else, I'll just thank you again and tell you this has been wonderful and I will remember you all. <laughs> <laughs>